humans, hello humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950, down in the bunker in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Happy to talk to you today. Happy to be here. It is the, you know, next to last weekend in July. And, um, you know, I'm reminded, okay, the days are getting shorter. And soon we'll be talking about fall foliage foliage, and crisp temperatures. And I say that like so happily, but I don't want that at all. Trust me, I don't. At any rate, um, we have a great show. The big interview is with Jennifer Halpis, the mother of a transgender son who sued the um, Anoka Hennepin School District for discriminating against her son um, and won. And you'll hear uh, Jennifer talk about the straw that broke the camel's back on that and, and the big settlement that she got as a result. In my C block, I'm going to talk about, a, you know, uh, some a- small advocacy that I did this week. And for those who care, I'll provide you a, a Jack the Puppy update. I do not have Jack here with me in the studio today because um, last week was a little bit of a challenge. I think Jack needs to get a few more, few more weeks under his belt before we bring him back to the station. But trust me, he will be a regular here at the station once um, he's old enough. But let's begin with our featured idealist, Ida B. Wells, a black woman who was born into slavery in 1862. She later went on to become the most notable black investigative reporter of the late 19th and early 20th century, centuries, and someone who Frederick Douglass, that Frederick Douglass, was in awe of. There is, trust me, there is not enough time to lay out everything about Ida B. Wells. There isn't. So here are the basic key facts. After the Civil War, Ida lived in Mississippi with her parents and seven. Her father was a carpenter, and during Reconstruction, became a trustee for Rust College and got, later then got involved in politics. However, in 1878, both of Ida's parents and a sibling died of yellow fever, another pandemic, and one that we're barely aware of here in this, this century, but it that took millions, you know, hundreds of thousands of people's lives, and it took both of Ida B. Wells' parents and a sibling. And so, um, so Ida B. Wells and her six siblings were without parents, and there were there was a push by family members to place each of the children in separate foster homes. But Ida B. Wells, sixteen years old, okay, refused to allow that and said that she would keep her siblings together and raise them herself. Just think about that. One must assume this helped to fuel Ida B. Wells' independence and her tenacity and grit. Eventually, Ida and her siblings moved to Memphis, Mississippi. They moved to Memphis, where she was hired to be, the, be a teacher by the Shelby County school system. During the summer months, she attended college at Fisk University, um, a a historic black college in Nashville. In 1884, at age 22, are you keeping track with me with how young this woman was? She was a passenger on a Chesapeake and Ohio railroad train sitting in the first class ladies' car. A conductor ordered her to move to the smoking car to make room for white passengers, and she refused to give up her seat. Eventually, three men dragged her out of the railroad car. Ida B. Wells fought back by 
writing a newspaper article in a black newspaper about her experience. And then, just like we heard from Jennifer Hoppus about straws that break camel, camel's backs, um, Ida B. Wells then filed a law against the railroad. This is in 1884. This is radical that a black person would file a lawsuit, this one against a railroad company. But not only did she file the lawsuit, but she won a $500 judgment against that railroad for the way that they treated her by you know, hauling her off, the, dragging her off the railroad car with, by three men and, um, and marginalize her. The uh, railroad appealed the $500 judgment and ultimately the Tennessee Supreme Court reversed the judgment. So, um, but that did not deter Ida B. Wells. She was even more, uh, even more committed to talking about civil rights um, and, and, and about the, the righteousness of how black people should be treated. May I note that this fight over seating, which a 22-year-old woman took up, over seating on public transportation, that this fight that Ida B. Wells took on when she was 22 years old occurred 71 years before Rosa Parks. This is how radical and forward-thinking Ida B. Wells was. While still teaching in Memphis, Ida began writing as a journalist, decrying Jim Crow practices. Her words appeared in a Washington, D.C. newspaper and a paper in Memphis. In 1889, at age 27, Ida B. Wells co-owned a paper, The Free Speech and Headlight, um, which was officed in the Beale Street Baptist Church in Memphis. You're all street. That's where her, um, her newspaper and its printing press uh, were located. But Ida B. Wells' activism, her words got her in trouble. And I've got quotation marks around trouble. We remember John Lewis and his phrase about making good trouble. Well, her words for Ida B. Wells got her in trouble. She had written about the poor conditioned schools in the Memphis area. And in 1891, the Memphis Board of Education, um, which was her employer at the time, fired her because of her words, her activism. Um, In 1892, (laughs) Ida's idealism took a whole new turn when a friend to uh, Ida uh, was lynched in Memphis. That friend had opened an African-American cooperative grocery store that competed with the grocery store across the street. A minor incident between two teenage boys, one was white, the other was black, outside the the African-American cooperative grocery The two teenage boys got into a fight. It escalated into an altercation between Ida's friend, the owner of of the black grocery store, and the store owner. Uh, His name was uh, Moss. And he and the white store owner, the guy across the street operating the white grocery store, um, the two of them got into an altercation. Eventually, a white crown descended on the black store. There was some shooting, and Moss and two other men were A white crowd then took the three men from the local Memphis jail where they were awaiting uh, trial and then took them out of the jail. This is an old story that we have heard time and again. They took the three men out of the jail, this crowd of white people, and they took them to a place in, uh, in Memphis and shot and killed all three of them. This happened in 1892. This propelled Ida to write about the event, and to them began looking at other lynchings. 
Now, in May, that was in March of 1892. In May, just two months after the lynching that killed Ida's friend Moss and the two others, in May of 1892, Ida B. Wells wrote an editorial about how Southerners use lies about black men allegedly raping white women as to exercise power over the black community. This was a flammatory opinion piece by Ida B. Wells based on her experience of what she was seeing. A few days after that, um, uh, another Memphis paper, this one owned by a Publish, uh, this one owned by white people, published a threat against Ida B. Wells, saying that the, quote, wonderful patience of Southern whites was being attacked. A second white Memphis paper then went further and said that Ida B. Wells should be killed. <laughs> I mean, we think things are bad here now. This is what newspapers were writing. That was enough. That second newspaper, the two newspapers ganging up on Ida B. Wells in May of 1892, that was enough to cause a white mob to to descend on the offices of Ida's paper um, and to ransack it and essentially destroy it. At the time, Ida B. Wells was in New York, luckily. She was not at the newspaper. And she never, Ida B. Wells never returned to Memphis after that after a new newspaper was ransacked and destroyed by an angry mob of white people. And instead, Ida B. Wells went to live in New York City and began writing for a New York City paper. Five months later, Ida B. Wells published her first pamphlet uh, titled um, uh, Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases, uh, where she wrote about the many lynchings in the South and highlighted the reason for those lynchings, for white people, white colored people, to have economic power over blacks. She also noted how southern states had begun to pass laws disenfranchising blacks from voting. Ida went then on to chronicle lynching in the U.S. for the next 40 years. And eventually this included her speaking in England about the horrors of lynching in the United States. B. Wells also was a founding member of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. In 2020, Ida B. Wells was posthumously honored, awarded a Pulitzer Prize special citation, quote, for her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African Americans during the era of lynching, unquote. There is so, so much more here about Ida B. Wells, but I'm out of time. Please just Google Ida B. Wells, and you'll get a wonderful Wikipedia entry that will tell you so very much. I need to tell you that Ida B. Wells is one of the most inspiring idealists that I have come across in the course of doing this show. Please know her name, learn about her legacy, and be in awe of her courage. Unbelievable idealism. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that. When we come back, we're going to do the big interview with Jennifer Hoppus, and then we'll do the C Block. We're back. 
Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, as I said, Ida B. Wells, please make sure you read about her, okay? She made history. She did a lot of things that were important for other humans. And that is a great segue into the big interview because I have on the line another human who has done some really great things for other humans um, in, involving the court system. I've got Jennifer Halpis on the line. Jennifer, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hey, Jennifer. Welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. Thanks for being on my show. Um, Jennifer, let's uh, just so that we can get you introduced to the audience, you are the mom of a transgender son, um, and that son was attending uh, Anoka uh, High School, and no, Coon Rapids. Oh, sorry. I'm thank sorry. you. Coon Rapids, but yeah. in, in Anoka County, right? Anoka Hennepin School District. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. Coon Rapids. And, um, and your son was the, as a transgender human was marginalized, uh, in a number of ways. And you yeah. as his mom went and did something extraordinary. You filed a lawsuit over it, Right. Right. Okay, go ahead and bring us up. How did, you know, how long, how, your son's name is Nick. Um, yes. And how long did Nick endure um, marginalization and what kinds of things did he endure? And, and what was the one, you know, straw that broke the camel's back for you to say, I'm going to lawyers? Uh, well, in 2015, we moved newly to... Coon Rapids, and uh, right when he came out, I had put a deposit down on an apartment, so I had contacted the school after I learned they already had a suit filed by LGBT kids, and they were in a, uh, they settled, so they... That would be the Anoka, that was the Anoka Anoka Hennepin Hennepin. School, yep, school district, okay. Yes. And when right. and, and so hold on, Jennifer. Let me just let, Jennifer. Let me school. just interrupt. Jennifer, let me interrupt you. When you use the phrase "come out," that meant that Nick came out as a transgender boy. Yes. Okay. All right. At, at age, so he was fourteen. Okay. Going into freshman year. Okay. And he took the opportunity to because I had the idea to move out of Forest Lake, and he didn't want to move, um, and that enabled him. To more easily come out, I believe. Okay. Anyhow, yep. um, everything was great, so it seemed. He did get pulled out of class uh, due to being transgender on a number of times. and, and um, What kind of a class? It, that's a good question. Uh, he, the problem with it is I didn't always know okay. when he was being pulled out, but I came to know that he would be pulled out many times, and sometimes it was just a Q&A, but we never knew t- for to what end. And and so it uh, was, are you talking like PE classes he was pulled out or just ge- regular education uh, classes? I think both. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Yes. And the discrimination, really, we didn't experience it until, because he wanted to join the swim team. Okay. And I went and met with the athletic director at the time, who was Kelly Scott. Um, 
and he arranged everything as you as correctly as the person could, and he based it off an Illinois lawsuit having to do with a transgender student in locker rooms and um, put up curtain separators, and we thought everything was fine, and with three swim meets left in the season, the school board got wind of it and called us to basically cancel his participation in the locker of his sport. This is even As after. You know, even, this is even though the the swim coach was supportive of your son, and and the swim coach, the athletic director, yeah. Okay, so and his teammates, even they had no incidents. Okay. As as we as is the case with most transgender kids, right? Right. There's never ever exactly. any incidents. Okay, but the school board got involved. Is that because parents had complained in some way? I believe so. How else does the school board learn? Right. Um, so, in just participating at a very JV level, um, trying to enjoy the high school experience. That um, was all taken away in that one phone call, even though within three hours they called back and said, never mind, just finish the season. It was pretty much over. And the mental health, that's really escalated right in that. So within weeks, we were in the hospital for self-harm, suicide ideation. I can't remember which, but to me, it's one and the same. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm so, sorry. I'm sorry th- that I'm sorry that your son and you went through that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what? So, so what year was Nick at this point at the at the habits? So this was freshman year swimming team. Okay. And then, um, because the locker room conversation was being had about sports extracurriculars, then they also wanted him to take online FIED classes. Well, he he happens to enjoy FIED. Um, he didn't want online FIED. He wanted to do FIED with his friends. Right. Um, like any high school kid would. So that was a problem. So they just kept adding to the pattern of segregation. It was just, it ended up being consistent that every time something came up, they just wanted him separate from his peers. So the straw that broke the camel's back in 2017, I asked the whole year because he didn't have Fayette until spring. Well, that was by design, which I did not understand at the time, but the whole time they were building a, what they called a enhanced privacy locker room. But the difference in what they told me was kids can um, ask for this locker room space. However, we were assigned that space. Uh. And, And they would never address that. We did not ask for this, so we're not doing it. And then they proceeded to say that he would be subject to disciplinary action just as if he had gone on the rooftop of the building, which is a very different comparison. (laughs) 
nobody belongs on the roof, but all children who are taking FIED in a public school belong in the locker room. Okay. So um, that led to basically the lawsuit. Okay. And Jennifer- and, and upon being introduced to that space and them not his own wishes, we we had by then attorneys kind of following our story okay. at the ACLU and gender justice. Okay. Now, Jennifer, I need to interrupt you because we're going to take a break. Okay. And when we come back, I want to hear more about this story about your son, Nick, uh, who is transgender, was a student at Coon Rapids at the high school in the Anoka-Hennepin School District, and how he was marginalized, and then you did something about it. But we've got to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about what you did. Okay? Great. Okay, listeners, you've been listening to me speaking to uh, Jennifer Hoppus. Um, when we come back from the break, we'll get more of the story here. If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com. Email me at elliejkrug at gmail. I love hearing from you. And uh, we'll be back in a second. Thanks. We're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio and AM 950. Um, before we took the break, we, we had the big interview going with Jennifer Hoppus, who, had, who has a transgender son who was a student at uh, high school in Coon Rapids in the Anoka Hennepin School District. And her son, transgender, was the subject of segregation and marginalization by the school district. And Jennifer, you said the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back was that the school had constructed a special, special area within the locker room that was for specific, you know, extra privacy. And students uh, voluntarily could use that area, but your son, Nick, was told he had to use that area. I have all that right? Yes. And they, they, they like to, to be in within the boys' locker room. But it was actually a separate space. There was no connection to the locker room. They may have shared a wall. (laughs) Okay. Yep. (laughs) Right. Yep. Yep. And so, okay. And so then you had had some lawyers involved. I mean, they were in behind the scenes, you know, helping advise you. And then you made the decision you were going to, you were going to file an actual lawsuit against the school district, right? Um, Well, I kept the lawyers apprised because I knew that in public education, it had to be more stringent than in in employment, where you have equal access to your education, no matter who you are. Right. Um, And that kind of connected me with these attorneys. And the attorneys followed the story. And once it got to a certain point, they said, yep. We'd like to file a lawsuit. We'd like to do the work. Okay, and you did that. You filed the lawsuit, and yep. um, and that made that made the news. And you know, what did you hear? What did you hear from parents in reacting to you know you suing the school district? I'm assuming you got reactions on kind of both sides of the coin. Being new to the community, I didn't really know anyone, so maybe that was to my benefit. Ah, but okay. um, 
I really didn't get much uh, of any backlash or there was random support here and there right by people I didn't really know right. um, but new to the community probably had something to do with not hearing too much on that aspect okay and then as with any lawsuit there are you know various motions that go back and forth and a number of things but ultimately your case got to the Minnesota Court of Appeals right right. And then ultimately, um, what last was it last last fall? The court. It was of, September of 2020. Yep, September of 2020. The court of appeals ruled in uh, your and your son's favor. Is that right? Actually, they mostly ruled in general on the in favor of gender diverse students, and I'm not sure if it covers only students in K-12, but. Yeah, they ruled in favor of that, and then going forward, um, they had to base the future court or settlement on that, so it was in favor of Nick as well. Right, and so essentially what the Court of Appeals did, it it didn't specifically rule you know, on Nick per se, but it ruled that Nick had the right to file the lawsuit. He had the right to make the claim that he was making, Right. You betcha. Okay. And then, the so the school district at that point saw the handwriting on the wall, and ultimately your attorneys and the attorneys for the school district worked out a settlement, right? Right, right. Nick's attorneys and the schools, because at that time he is over 18. Ah, okay. March 2021, the settlement was announced. Okay, okay. And um, are you at liberty to disclose the amount? Uh, it was public. It was a $300,000 settlement. So over a quarter million dollars it cost school districts to discriminate against transgender students. Right. Over a quarter of a million bucks because they wanted to, they wanted to treat Nick differently than they tra- treated any other, any other student. Right. And they did it out of fear, right? I mean, they did it out of ignorance and they did it out of fear. Oh, Absolutely. So, okay. And how do you feel? I mean, obviously, I'm assuming you getting word of the Court of Appeals coming down with the decision saying that Nick had a valid claim. Assuming that that was a pretty uh, joyous occasion in your life. It, it really was. I think the most rewarding experience was in the district court when uh, the Attorney General of the Minnesota Department of Human Rights were seeking to intervene in the lawsuit. And that was... Uh, I guess the whole purpose of that district hearing and the opposing counsel said, and I quote, she already has an army of lawyers. She doesn't need more. (laughs) I was feeling pretty proud of myself and my son. I love it. I love it. Now. All right. So Jennifer and, and we, you know, we didn't say this at the beginning, but you and I know each other. We, I mean, you and I actually, you and I had sat and talked about, Nick's situation, you even filed the lawsuit, I believe. And, and um, tell me what you, you know, you know, Nick uh, certainly wasn't and isn't, wasn't the only um, transgender student in Noka Hennepin, nor certainly in, in the state of Minnesota. And we've also, of course, have 
lesbian and gay and bisexual children out there in addition to trans or non-binary students. Jennifer, what would you tell the parents of their students, you know, who have students that are navigating the school system and when the school system is resisting, is bucking um, their, the needs of their children? What message do you have for those parents? Well, definitely uh, plan ahead because just going on the news to get attention, sometimes you get unwanted attention. Um, Really getting help, reading that apply to bullying and discrimination within the, um, the school board policies or the district's policies, and just follow through with those. Um, You learn a lot by doing it. It's very uninteresting work, but when your child is at stake, you will do the work, or you should. So in other words, go and see what the school district has already created and Mm -hmm. use their own words against them. Right. Use their use their policies against them. I, I mean, just follow through with it. And when you don't get the answers you need, then you've got to go steps farther. And those steps usually, some of them are in there. But once you get to a certain point, you should have enough information to know that you need more help, and right. that will be legal help. Right. And so when you start talking about planning. You know, you don't go and get the lawyer when the final straw happens. The good approach is to have the lawyers, you know, they don't necessarily have to be let, you don't necessarily have to let the school district know that you've got the attorneys involved, but, but have the lawyers in the, you know, your back pocket so that, Mm -hmm. you know, so that when you need them, they're ready to go versus you're going to have to start from, you know, scratch with the lawyers right. after the after the straw that breaks the camel's back occurs, right? Yes. I mean, when human rights are involved, the lawyers will meet with you and tell you, uh, they advise, they advise me, um, and just stay in contact. And yes, they validate what you're feeling. I mean, if you're right, they will validate that you have something. And right. it's, worth it to keep going. Right. Right. So Jennifer, let me ask you this. What, what did you learn about you, Jennifer Halpas, human in the process of doing this? I would say I lost myself in this whole thing. Could you explain? Um, everything became about my son Everything for me was on the back burner. I was fighting for his rights, and then I was driving him to therapists to keep him alive. <laughs> um, multiple therapists, and then also visiting the hospitals when he was admitted. So for the yeah, I admitted for who the, I am, and yeah. I mean, I discovered what I already knew that I'm strong and stubborn. <laughs> Um, and when I know I'm right, I will fight. Right. Well, and I'm sorry that Nick went through that. I mean, you know, when you talk about hospitalizations, that was for depression, right? It's for depression, anxiety, suicide ideations. Um, eventually, 
chemical addiction. Sure, the slippery slope, right? Oh, yeah. Every um, statistic that they put out there about what happens to unaffirmed transgender or LGBT, any, any kid who is not affirmed for any reason, their mental health is impacted. Right. And I experienced every statistic, and I don't wish it on anyone. And it just could have been so simple for the school district to just say, we'll let Nick be Nick. Well, right? it would have been really simple to say, we just settled a lawsuit. We're getting out of a five-year consent decree with the lawsuit we LGBT students against our own district. Do we want to go down this path again? Because Coon Rapids High School, the athletic director, the swim coach, they all seem to have it figured out. <laughs> Nothing's going on here. There's nothing to report. But the school district decided that they wanted to, again, do mm -hmm. what was not right for their students. Right. And the school board members primarily, they're, they're about parties, political parties, not parents. <laughs> and when you talk about, I mean, there had been a prior lawsuit against going back into the early teens because they had had a rash of suicides of LGBTQ right. students. And the school district... I know it. The school district wouldn't even allow teachers to talk about LGBT topics. They wouldn't even allow them to do that, right? That's what I understand. Yep. And so they got sued over that. The Department of Justice got involved. There was a consent decree. And then Nick comes along, and they again marginalized a transgender human, right? Right, and then contributes to suicide ideation again. So in the end, um, school boards need to do better, right? They, they need to do better. they they got to have a policy because if they end up in a lawsuit, the settlement's going to require a policy anyway, so why not get ahead of it? Right, right. Well, Jennifer, it's been really great to talk to you. We've, we're running out of time here. But thank you for being on LE 2.0 Radio, and thank you for being so brave, okay? And I'm sorry that you went through all of that, and Nick did too, but I'm so happy that you got the result that you did. And in the end, you and Nick are going to help countless, countless other transgender and LGBT students in Minnesota and, and in the region. So thank you for being brave. Thank you for having me, and, and I hope that the law being clarified is enough. I hope so, too. All right, Jennifer, thanks so very much. All right, listeners, we've been speaking with Jennifer Halpis about her very arduous but successful um, attempt to protect the rights of her transgender son, um, at Coon Rapids High School. Um, and uh, this is, of course, uh, something that you can even read about in the news. If you want to go just Google Coon Rapids Transgender Settlement, you'll get all the details. When we come back, um, we're going to do my C block, where I'm going to talk a little bit about advocacy that I did this week. All right, you're listening to LE 2.0 Radio on AM 950. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. Right. Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? 
Ellie 2.0 Radio. So it's inspiring to hear from ordinary people like Jennifer Hoppus because it reminds us that anyone, anyone can be brave and anyone can make a difference in the world. Her, I mean, her lawsuit and the results that she and her son got out of that lawsuit here in Minnesota, it's going to be cited not only here in Minnesota, but nationally to protect transgender kids. So, okay, here's my C block. I want to talk a little bit about, um, very briefly, some advocacy I did this week. So the um, Osseo uh, School District here in Minnesota um, was considering a gender inclusion policy. Um, the school board um, had previously talked about it, and on Tuesday night was the night that they were going to vote on whether or not to allow the policy. It was um, a full room. I was asked to come up um, by one of the school board members to come up and uh, speak. Uh, you know, during the public comment, everybody only got three minutes. Ellie Crew got three minutes, just like everyone else. There were about 20 people who spoke, um, and, um, and, and it was one of these things where you had people that were in favor, people that were opposed to the gender inclusion policy. You had in the room people clapping for their each respective sides. I thought it was quite divisive, actually, to tell you the truth. Um, and many of those people who spoke in favor of the policy were extremely eloquent, way, way more than I, I could ever be on the fly. But I was called um, to speak and... and um, and well, hold on a second. Before I say that, the, one of the people who spoke in opposition to the policy was a pastor who related a story about how he had been bullied as a, as a boy in school, told that he was gay um, and shamed. And, and apparently he, he lived as a gay man for 10 years. He's relating this at the school board meeting. Um, but that eventually he found, um, he found God. And through religion, he said that he was able to determine that he actually wasn't gay and then he related that he had been married for 15 years to a woman and that they'd had some children. But he was speaking against the gender inclusion policy because it was his view that it was going to cause children to go down the errant wrong road. But eventually I was called to speak. And so I got up and I started to speak. And then one of the school board members um, interrupted me and voiced a disagreement over the fact that I was speaking even because I was not from the dist school district. Um, they got past that. They continued to allow me to speak then. And when I did, I, you know, essentially all that I said was that this policy to affirm that people would, you know, at the school, teachers and administrators would respect transgender and non-binary students, that they would use the right pronouns, use the names that the students wanted them to use, that their locker rooms, just like you heard from Jennifer and their restrooms, that the students could use the restrooms that conform to their gender identity rather than to what their body was. Um, I just said, look, what the policy does is allow kids to figure things out for themselves. And I just talked about how young humans need space to figure things out. And then I went on to say that, you know, hey, listen to my voice. <laughs> because, uh, and then look at me, uh, you know, a chick with a dude's voice. And I said, this is what happens when you suppress a child's identity. They don't get the chance to figure things out until they're much, much older. 
But they also said this, I turned to the pastor and the others in the crowd that were seated next to him that were opposing the policy. And I said to the pastor specifically that I was sorry for what he went through as a young boy and that his words had touched my heart. And that I, I, I just wanted him to know that I had empathy for him. And then I said to him and to his colleagues, I said, why can't we get together and talk about what we're afraid of and see if we can find common ground? You know, I gave my name, I gave my website, I said, please reach out to me. I would welcome having conversations so we can get past this division because the divisions that were in that room help no one. As I was leaving, the pastor asked for my card. And I said to him, I whispered to him, I said, listen, I said, I really meant what I said. And he said, I could tell that you were sincere about that. We'll see if he calls me. But that's, what I, that's my role, everyone. It's to bridge our divisions, not to fuel them. I'm a unifier, not a divider. Okay, the Jack Report. Um, I am a human pincushion um, for this um, now 10-week-old golden retriever um, English cream dog. <laughs> uh, in addition to uh, looking at my arm right now and seeing a whole lot of different nip marks, um, because he just he, he thinks that he can, he can teeth on my arms and hands. Um, in addition to that, potty training is a bit of a challenge. <laughs> Oh, you know, I'm a, you know, I am a person of, of schedules and routines, and this dog has upper, upended my entire life. I am overwhelmed at times with him. However, when he is soft, like asleep or just waking up, he is adorable. And he gives me kisses, not bites. <laughs> okay, there you go, a big... Thanks to, uh, that's another show in the can, as we say in the radio business. A big thanks to my producer, Patrick, for everything he's done today. Listeners, a big thanks to you. I hope that um, you do well this week coming up. Um, and you know what? Between now and when you hear my voice next, do me a favor. Go out, do good, do something to make the world a better place. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye.